I'm Jack Cohen, the Associate Rabbi at Hampstead Shul, and this is Community. In this podcast, I get to speak to some extraordinary people from the Jewish community about themselves, about religion, about everything else. This is a DK production, so sit back, turn up the volume, and enjoy. I start this episode with guidance for the listener. In this episode, we're going to be talking about sex and sexuality pretty exclusively. And even though we're not used to rabbis addressing this topic head on and in a frank way, I believe that it's not just important to discuss, it's essential. Sexuality is a cornerstone of our identity as human beings. And in light of this, the Torah and our sages address it often openly and directly. It's also something which I believe is not discussed enough and in a healthy and helpful way, which leads to its own problems. Nonetheless, if this topic is not for you, stop listening now. You've been warned. And with that said, our guest in this episode is the Israel-based Tully Rosenbaum, who is a leader in the field of sex therapy with over 25 years of professional experience. Tully is the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, Intimate Judaism, which I would urge you to check out. And we've put a link to it along with other resources about Tully in our show notes. I was so taken with her podcast that I had to get her on this one too. So I reached out and I'm incredibly grateful that she has taken the time to speak with us. And I think this episode is a really special one. We discuss a ton of material such as the link between sexuality and mental health, what sex therapy is, challenges and tensions in the Orthodox Jewish world around the questions of sex and sexuality, and much, much more. Listening back to this episode, I found it not only informative, but also helpful and healing too. And I'm sure you'll find the same. So again, thank you for Tully for taking the time out for us and let's get straight to it. Tully, thanks so much for coming onto our podcast. It's a real pleasure and privilege. My pleasure. So you're a sex therapist and I wanted to start with how does how and why does one become a sex therapist? And what is the job? What is the work of a sex therapist? Well, I'm really glad you asked because the truth is, is that there's a lot of um, a misinformation People really don't understand what a sex therapist is or what a sex therapist does. And of course, there's um, going to be some different nuances in different countries. But it's really important uh, to say that you're not just a sex therapist. In order to be a sex therapist, you first have to be a therapist. Sex therapy is a mental health profession. So when we talk about being a sex therapist, you, you're really talking about somebody who is trained and licensed as a mental health professional, either as a psychologist or social worker or um, counselor, and who has a second degree, at least a master's level degree uh, in mental health counseling or clinical psychology or clinical social work. So that's really important to know that you first have to be a, a therapist in order to be a sex therapist. And there are many people out there because the words sex therapy are not uh, it's not particularly um, illegal. You can call yourself whatever you want. Um, and there isn't really a lot of laws that protect the profession. People can call themselves sex therapists because, you know, they might be a yoga instructor who's interested in using yoga to help sex. And so they'll call themselves a sex therapist. But it's a very important message to anybody listening who wants help with their 
relationships or with their sexuality or their functioning, that they make sure that if they are, depending on what country you live in or what state you live in, um, if you are going to pursue uh, sex therapy, you make sure that the person you're going to is in fact um, a certified and registered and um, professionally licensed uh, mental health professional who has done additional training to become a sex therapist. And there are, you know, doctors and other medical professionals who, you know, may work in the area. So they may call themselves sexologists or sex counselors. There's certainly a role for medical professionals who are sex counselors, sexologists. There's a role for sex educators, but that does not make them sex therapists. Okay, thank you. So if I understood correctly, what was implied there is that what people might think is that this is, you know, or might be might be prepared to think is that this is an issue that they might be they might they might have an issue that they're struggling with. And they can divorce that that issue from broader questions of mental health. And they just need some technical um, assistance uh, or guidance. And you're saying that, that this all has to come from a basis of understanding mental health. Well, not necessarily. I mean, the truth is, is that, you know, if all you need is some technical help, then there, then you need to be able to speak to somebody who is, um, who is sufficiently trained to provide that technical help. And a sex therapist can do that, but there are other people who can do that as well. Once you're already seeing a sex therapist, then the implication is, is that you're open to looking at all the different aspects of what goes into sexuality, which includes obviously the relational aspects and the biopsychosocial um, parts of the presenting issue. And while sex might be an important presenting issue, it's often a symptom and not necessarily the only thing that's happening with the individual or with the couple. Um, so it is important to know what you're looking for. If you're really just looking for some technical help, um, then there are people who are trained to provide that technical help. So can you speak a little bit more about where the issues might lie beyond technical help, why sexuality might be very strongly tied in with more broad mental health questions? Well, let's first kind of acknowledge the topic here. I mean, here, you know, you, you have a podcast, it's a new podcast, and you're interviewing interesting people who do interesting things. Um, but it's a Jewish podcast. And, and even if it weren't, the fact is, is that sex is not... Uh, is not commonly talked about in an open way in all circles. And so I think we first need to acknowledge that this is a podcast where you're going to be talking about sexuality. Not everybody listening to this podcast has, you know, has felt comfortable or has had a lot of experience either listening to or talking about sexuality in an open way. So we first need to acknowledge that, you know, we're at a place in history, which is um, pretty, pretty developed in the sense that we can have a podcast that's meant for, you know, young uh, Jews on the Orthodox Jewish spectrum. And here we are talking about sexuality. And we're talking about it openly. And we're talking about all the different aspects of sexuality. So that's, that's something I just think we need to put out there. And also to acknowledge that there are some of you listeners who might be feeling very comfortable, very curious, very interested. And there are some listeners that might feel um, uncomfortable. And if you feel uncomfortable or if this triggers something 
that doesn't feel good for you, then, you know, then stop listening. Um, because some people have had negative experiences around sex. Um, but sex is a part of life and sexuality is a part of development. Just like through life, we develop our physical sense of self, our physical health, our emotional, mental health. We develop our spiritual health and our spiritual sense of self. There's also a development of sexuality and sexuality kind of goes into all those three areas. There's sexual development, which is based on physical development, hormones and uh, nerves and blood vessels and all those things that you need to physically function sexually. There's the sexual developmental process that has to do with emotional development, the development of language, of communication, of understanding, of intimacy, um, of connection, of body image, um, how you feel with yourself and with your body, what kind of experiences have you had, what sort of, um, uh, what, what have been the things that you've seen around sex or heard around sex. So that's all part of um, the, uh, the sexual development that has to do a lot with emotional development. And then there's also spiritual development vis-a-vis -vis sex. Much of how we develop sexually will have to do a lot with the social messages, the religious messages, and the cultural messages that are wrapped up in uh, values around sex, principles of sexual ethics and beliefs. And so, you know, part of talking about sexuality then is really not just about technically how to, you know, how to put something somewhere else. I mean, there's so much more to it because it's about connection and relationship and pleasure. It's about um, communicating. It's about mutuality and respect and boundaries, um, consent. So there's so many aspects of sex uh, that have a lot more to do with just the, am I functioning or not? Or am I, fun you know, do I last as long as I want? Or, you know, do I, uh, do I predictably uh, reach a, sat a satisfying climax every time? I mean, there's really a lot more to it. Okay, so coming back to you, why does one go into this field? And how, does, how do you end up being where you are in this field? Uh, people in the sexual health field all have very varied reasons for having entered the field. And I would say that my, um, probably my biggest motivator was curiosity. Um, and that came about because mental health was not my first profession. My first profession was, um, I was a physical therapist first. And uh, I got into sexual health as a physical therapist, treating women with um, what's called sexual pain disorders. There's, there are all sorts of um, different reasons, medically and physically, um, also emotionally, because they work together, um, that some women have pain. And being that my specialty area was an area known as the pelvic floor, um, I became very involved in working with women on issues related to sexual health. Where my curiosity came in is where um, it was very clear that you could not really isolate um, these issues from the emotional aspects, from the relational aspects, um, from the psychological aspects, from anxiety, from obsessive thinking, from all sorts of uh, dynamics in the relationship, things going on. And um, I realized that I felt limited. And I also was kind of in the field for a long time. I had published. I 
I, I was ready to kind of move on and become a mental health professional. Um, I wanted to be a sex therapist when I started out, you know, going for my master's in counseling. I knew that that's what I would end up doing, but I didn't really need all that much training in the actual basics of sex therapy because I had had that from, from before. Um, but my training was very important to me in terms of becoming a mental health professional because that's what taught me um, some very important aspects of uh, dealing with um, dealing also with the, um, you know, distress people who have issues with their sexuality or they have issues with their sexual function tend to be very distressed by them. It distresses them individually. It distresses the relationship. And so being able to learn how to help people uh, manage that distress as part of the process of um, also addressing the sexual issues um, that was kind of what led me into into the field. Thank you. So we've spoken, I think, maybe a little bit abstractly, and we can provide a few, you know, con more concrete examples. You've pr presumably been exposed to a whole range of many, many different people with many different um, struggles and traumas and challenges that have come to you and turned to you uh, for help and guidance. Are there themes that you see, you know, specifically amongst the younger generation that are specific things people are struggling with and that you kind of wish there was more information generally readily available for people uh, and that people could be helped if they just knew a little bit more and were exposed to a little bit more? Yeah, there definitely are themes, particularly if we look at this from a cultural lens. Um, I would say that, you know, most of my demographic that I work with is on the spectrum of Orthodox Judaism. Um, and um, I do think that there, even though the, what I'm about to raise may not be completely unique, uh, I think it, it uh, probably uh, does resonate, particularly in a community where sex education is limited and often there's like a split because you can't get the information that you need. All you're taught is just be Shomer Nagia or, um, you know, save everything for marriage. And then you get Kala classes and you're taught how to have intercourse. And it's and, and sometimes the Kala classes are great and sometimes they're not so great. But there isn't really any general kind of, you know, control of what's being said. So there's limited education. And when there's limited education, there are a couple of options. So you can split into, okay, I'm going to go learn about sex. And usually the sources are not so um, credible, such as pornography. Um, and so that split occurs. And that's something that I might see often where people come in with very unusual or not really realistic expectations about sex because their only sex education that was available to them in, in because regular uh, normative healthy sex education wasn't wasn't available so they went to what was available which was porn and that gave kind of a, a distorted picture of what sexuality should should look like another common scenario is um, this kind of belief about sexual obligation in marriage and this kind of shift from the expectation that there be no uh, kind of sexual experimentation or touch before marriage. And then this expectation that you just get married and in one night you become completely uh, sexually active overnight. That's also 
can be a great source of cognitive dissonance for many people just kind of trying to make that transition in such a short time. And in terms of obligation, I think that many still, even in modern circles, um, there is still, unfortunately, the message being sent that, you know, you have to consummate your wedding on the wedding night. You have to have sex on mikvah night. Um, you kind of have to push yourself to have sufficient sex so that your husband doesn't um, fail religiously. Or we all know that that means, you know, you need to be responsible for preventing your husband from having to masturbate or go to pornography. Uh, messages that make the woman feel like she's in charge of um, making sure that uh, that that she's providing sex, that it's a service that she needs to provide without enough emphasis on pleasure. On the other hand, many will come and say, what are you talking about? I went to yeshiva and then I talked to my Hatan teacher and all he talked about was how you have to give your wife pleasure. You have to give your wife pleasure. She doesn't have to say yes to you, but you're not allowed to say no to her. So there's also that message. And I think that that message can also um, create a great deal of pressure on young men. And, um, you know, it's not easy either for young men who are also given very, very strong messages about the way it needs to be done legitimately and not to spill any seed along the way. And, um, you know, I think that there are various themes that come up to do with knowledge about how bodies change with pregnancy, postpartum, menopause. You know, a couple will come in, let's say, shortly after having a baby, where there's an expectation that they resume the same kind of sex life that they had before they had the baby because nobody told them. They just thought, okay, so, you know, six weeks later, you go to the mikvah and you kind of jump right back in. But there isn't, you know, there hasn't really been an awareness that, no, I mean, desire, sexual desire changes. Um, and there are peaks and valleys that have to do with what's going on in life, not just um, in terms of life, the external factors, but also the hormonal factors in the body. Um, the other thing is, is that um, people may have certain orientations or they may be interested or fetishes or kink or those kind of things. And there's a great deal of shame around it because there's no normalization of it. It's not anything that anybody would have talked about. So uh, that also can be a common conflict um, with, you know, between sexual health and spiritual health. I could keep going on, but I think those are a few examples of what you asked me for. There's so, obviously so, so, so much to unpack and I don't know necessarily where to begin. I've written like five things down that I want to go down. So let's say a couple will come to you presenting one or multiple of the cases that you described. Overall, what is your aim in the therapy? What are you trying to do to deal with this issue? So, you know, I think the difference between me and maybe other types of very behavioral minded therapists or coaching types of people, I don't have an aim. My, you know, it, it's the people that come to me. I'm more interested in hearing what they want and what they need and what they're looking for. I don't, I, I really want to more listen. Um, but once it becomes clearer what the goals are, then I would say that if we were to break it up, it's often about providing kind of like permission to be able to talk about anything. And sometimes it's about providing information that they 
uh, didn't have before or giving specific suggestions. Those would be the very, you know, kind of superficial levels. On a deeper level, though, often it's about, um, you know, looking at the, if, I, if I'm working with a couple, looking at the way that they communicate, how they kind of trigger each other, couples trigger each other, um, because they open up wounds that have been wounds for each of them from way before. So we want to talk about that and really work on improving the, 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 the intimacy, the compassion, the empathy, how they talk to each other, how they act with each other. And, you know, some people will say, but what about the sex? And sometimes the sex improves just because the relationships improve, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes, you know, the, the, there really is, um, certain aspects of sexual functioning that need to be confronted directly, even medically, um, as well as psychologically with behavioral exercise or something more body-based, you know, somatic. Uh, also, if there is trauma, that also needs to be addressed. Um, and when you asked me before about kind of common things, um, very often, you know, you might ask somebody who's coming in with a issue, let's say the woman is afraid of sex or she tightens up with sex. And a lot of therapists will say, well, there must have been some kind of past something. Maybe there was a trauma, sexual trauma or abuse or something that, and often if you ask directly, they won't remember or they won't, they, they won't know. They like, I really don't remember, or I really don't think anybody abused me. But when you take the history and you're talking to a woman who has been having sex on a regular basis because she felt that she had to and did not enjoy it and often had pain with it. Um, you know, that could be the trauma you know, that itself could be the trauma, even if it's not like an abuser, God forbid it's her husband, but he doesn't, you know, nobody told him either. Uh, he's just trying to do what he's supposed to do. So, uh, it really takes a lot of, I guess, appreciation for nuance and a lot of non-judgment and empathy to be doing this work. Okay, thank you. You spoke about a transition in the orthodox life cycle, at least as it should be, according to halacha, done in theory. And you spoke about how that can how that can be jarring and potentially, you didn't say this, but potentially damaging or risky. You know, you're talking about people that in theory, you know, have not been touching before they're married, and then they have to go from there to full uh, sexual beings and perhaps the lack of education uh, that's thrown into that mix as well. What, in your mind, would be a way to be mindful of the halakha, be mindful of the reality on the ground, that even amongst very religious, you know, couples, keeping these halakha sometimes can be very difficult. And then coming into, you know, the, the laws governing marriage and the big change there, is there a way that you see that kind of, you know, working within a halachic framework, we can make this whole process more healthy? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, because we can't separate sexuality from values. We have to be able to integrate um, our values. Again, it's integrating our spiritual health with our sexual health. So, um, you know, I think that that in no area is there more conflict between sexuality and religion? I mean, I think that there is a constant, constant tension 
between sexuality and halacha. I mean, when you think about young men who are taught that they should not masturbate, you know, there are, there are years of navigating tension and conflict around masturbation because masturbation is in essence a not unhealthy sexually thing to do. It is essentially considered part of normative sexual development. Um, but when you feel guilty about it every time you do it, that's going to affect the wiring um, and sometimes in a very negative way. Um, so I think that, number one, there has to be an acknowledgement that there are things that are very difficult to keep and certainly difficult to keep 100%. You know, we're, we're not supposed to slander and we're not supposed to say Lashon Hara. And, you know, those laws are very, very strict. And yet there are very few people who can, you know, would, e would easily be able to uh, demonstrate complete conform conformity to those laws. Um, you know, we have laws that, you know, really are there to, to teach us to be our best selves. Um, but there's also an understanding that, like with everything else, being able to choose what you decide to do with integrity and with intention is better than the alternative. The alternative being um, what I what I call splitting. You know, I'm not really doing this. Or even a couple who's not being shomer. Well, we're not really being doing this. There's so much guilt around it that they can't even talk about it. So the 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 danger of splitting when you engage in sexual behavior when you shouldn't be, I'm putting shouldn't be in quotes, um, the danger is that there's not going to be any communication about it, either before or after. When both parties are like, we're, we're fooling around now, but we're pretending that we're not. Nobody knows. And we're, that's when um, unprotected sex can happen um, because you're not really feeling like you're in your body autonomously with your bringing in your um, logical self as well. I think that um, we should be able to navigate halakha and sexuality by being able to talk about situations that are very real. People who are single and in their, you know, late, late 20s, 30s, um, where it actually gets to feel very, very unhealthy to not be able to connect with anybody sexually. Um, when we're talking about um, people who, who are homosexuals and they, you know, they, they don't have an ability to uh, live the best halachic life regarding um, uh, a sexual life and a, and a marital life. Um, so, so we have to be really aware that on some level, you know, those are, I would say those are more extreme challenges, but on some level, everybody is challenged. Um, with conflict and part of life is being able to navigate conflict and to live your best life and make your choices um, with as much integrity as you can. I want to feed some of that back to you because I think it was so, um, so important and went in a direction that I hadn't predicted, which is as follows. You have perhaps got, especially in the ultra-Orthodox community, Cases where there is a genuine case of people who are dating, maybe for the short term, who are not engaging in physical contact and end up getting married and have this kind of perhaps jarring transition, which, as you said before, with, you know, the appropriate coaching and education, that actually is not an, an uh, you know, an insurmountable challenge or, pot or potentially major one, especially 
if after the fact there's, you know, they, they know that there are resources that they can um, go to to discuss such things. But what you're speaking about is actually the, you're not talking per se about what the Jewish law is, but what you're speaking about is in cases where the the Jewish law and the practice on the ground are so split apart that you you just kind of enter this um this zone of shame and um what you spoke about as being splitting this dangerous psychological and in other in other ways as well place and part of the solution to that is to be able to have open communication in those areas and um to not keep these things in the dark and that people know that this is something that's being discussed both by perhaps religious leaders but also that there are places for them to go to where where they feel comfortable and otherwise you end up with just this horrendous situation where you're just compounding problems and so the you know solution is you know more or less to push perhaps especially from from religious leadership from rabbis and this that and the other more acknowledgement of these situations more open communication and whilst you know acknowledging what the halacha is there also has to be acknowledgement especially perhaps in you know in more modern orthodox communities and the rest of it of what is the situation on the ground otherwise you're going to end up in all sorts of um, problems exactly that's a excellent mirroring um, so I think that in a way that's kind of a challenge. It's a challenge for, it's a challenge for me and my, um, and, and my colleagues in the Ravana and other uh, education, other educators and all the rest of it to be more honest and open with, with reality yeah. and not hide and pretend things are not happening. Yeah, it's a challenge for rabbis. I mean, I'd have this discussion with my, the co-host of my podcast, uh, Intimate Judaism, um, where he's the rabbi and I'm the therapist, you know, he often expresses this same difficulty of, you know, I think that rabbis really do see themselves as kind of representative of the halachic stance. And especially when people are um, coming to you for halachic rulings. But at the same time, I think that an important role of rabbis is the pastoral role and to be able to also reassure people that, you know, we're not perfect. And, you know, I think that that healing shame and reducing shame is is an important role. Shame is different than guilt. I'm not saying that people should never feel guilty for for anything. I think guilt has a has a role. But where guilt is, you know, I chose to do something wrong or I did something wrong. Um, And maybe I can also forgive myself for that. Shame is I am something wrong. I just am bad. I'm a bad, dirty, lustful, abnormal human being. And I think that having a voice of soothing, especially uh, a voice of a you know spiritual representative that helps the soothing, it actually ends up working better also for the you know, for the religious cause in a sense, because the truth is, is that when people can be kinder with themselves and more compassionate and more forgiving, then it's kind of less of a struggle. And the acting out behaviors that they don't want to do end up happening less because they just feel more in control. I hope that that made sense. 
it did make sense. I want to talk okay. about this kind of being able to, the being able to choose. And when you've got this kind of, the difference between a, being able to choose versus it's not me who's doing this. Can you explain that a little bit more? I, I would I would explain it as kind of going into a dissociative state. And when I say dissociative, it's like I'm dissociating myself right now. I'm dissociating my true identity with what I'm about to do or what I'm doing. I can't really tolerate myself um, doing this. And so I'm going to run away from myself while I'm doing this. Um, I think that there are different ways of describing it. So, for example, somebody who is um, a believer in, you know, the, the the sex addiction model, for example, might say it's not me, it's my addiction, it's my disease that made me do it. Um, whereas my model of treating, or those of us who use a model of psychotherapy and for controlling out of control behavior will really look at the idea of agency and choice, that you actually are responsible for your actions and that you actually, you know, are choosing to do something that goes against your values and trying to understand what would lead you to want to do that. What is, you know, what is the trigger? Um, what are you soothing? Um, it's, it's deeper work than just saying, oh, well, my disease made me do it. I'm an alcoholic or I'm a sexaholic. Presumably then the benefit of that comes uh, into the ability for the individual to see themselves in a more holistic way with all of the contradictions that that might entail as opposed to this, this battling model. Yeah, I think that we have to be able to see ourselves as not perfect. And, you know, I think that life as a Jew is about the constant struggle to improve and be better and um, live your best life and your most spiritual life. But I think that if we're perfect, then we're there already. Then what more is there to do? I mean, you know, like, I, I think that, um, you know, we're all we're all human and, um, you know, being able to accept the different parts of us and integrate them in a healthy way is, is probably the best way to kind of deal with the fact that there are conflicts, you know, and people say, well, why can't they change halacha or why can't they, you know, I mean, like, I don't know of any way to change halacha. I only know that we can acknowledge that if it's too hard, then let's figure out a way to find what works for you. That may not be a rabbinic message, um, but I think it's a very human message. Right. That's why, that's why <laughs> as the therapist on your mm -hmm. podcast or the therapist, you can say that so that the rabbi doesn't have to say that. <laughs> right. So that the rabbi doesn't have to say that exactly. But the rabbi could also say that. I mean, I think that rabbis themselves, um, you know, deal with their own struggles. I mean, we're all human. Right. For, you know, as a, as a budding rabbi, as a young up and coming rabbi, it's important also for me to make sure that I have uh, role models who are very clear in their flaws because there is this element where there are these you know there is a, a movement within rabbinics that you know the, the way they the way some some rabbis will present themselves is as being perfect and I don't just mean in terms of um, behavior or dress code but I, even in terms of knowledge in fact from this 
idea of perfection, especially in rabbinics, is quite an interesting one. Maybe for another podcast. Um, I want to ask one final, I want to go down one final um, avenue, which is sure. we've, we've spoken about uh, the link between religion and sexuality and much, much more. Dealing with a more secular uh, world or, you know, perhaps people who are, who are not so religiously engaged, who, who are not uh, perhaps suffering from these internal conflicts and nonetheless are confronted with social media and media in general and TV and all the, and pornography you mentioned, all these other kinds of things. What are the problems that are kind of more general in society and what could we, what could be happening to improve those? Well, look, I think that everything that happens in secular society happens in religious society as well. And I think that secular people um, will have conflicts between their sexuality and their values because, you know, everybody does come from some sort of template of their own values. Um, I do think that when we talk about social media uh, and particularly when we talk about um, uh also, um, external factors such as Corona, for example, people were very, very lonely for a very long time. And it's, it's staggering the amount of pornography that has been downloaded. Um, but in the secular scientific literature about pornography, uh, there's going to be a real diversity of thought as to the um, actual dangers of pornography. Um, when there is a moral or religious agenda, it's likely that you'll read a paper that talks about how pornography is likely to affect marriage and affect sexual functioning. And when there's not that moral or religious agenda, you'll find um, some uh, some research that states that pornography has positive effects on relationships and on sexuality. And um, if it's uh, processed in a healthy way, um, it doesn't necessarily have a negative effect. So I think that um, it's very, very diverse. Um, and I think that the, the but on a, on, a, on a micro level, not on a macro level, but in terms of people, humans, people all kind of want the same thing. They all want to be able to connect. They all want to be able to um, seek uh, love and comfort and pleasure and, you know, hold and be held and have a relationship that they can trust the other person, um, that they can resolve conflict. They can't not have conflict. I mean, most couples have conflict, but to be able to um, talk about it afterwards and make up and get to a more intimate place. Um, I think that these are really universal. Um, I have a book that I wrote with uh, Dr. David Ribner, and it's called um, uh, I Am For My Beloved, and it's a guide to uh, enhanced uh, marital intimacy. And it's a book that was written for Orthodox Jews about both emotional and physical intimacy. And interestingly, we had quite a bit of feedback from non-Jews who, um, even though the chapter on uh, family purity laws and uh, other um, very very specifically Jewishly related topics um, did not apply. Um, they felt that what we talked about was very helpful and applicable to everybody. Um, so I hope that that answers your question. It's a human thing. 
It's a human thing. Exactly. That's great. Um, thank yeah. you. Thank you so, so much for your time. It was a, it was a, ple- it was a pleasure to have you on. And um, yeah, we'll thank have you, you have a lovely rest me. of your day. Thanks for listening to Community with me, Jack Cohen. The producer was David Kurzer. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode. And in the meantime, be sure to rate, comment and follow us wherever you get your podcasts.